Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Subaleski, and this episode is focused on Lyme disease. Now, honestly, I didn't see much of it when I was training. I worked in western Pennsylvania and then here in Cincinnati, and it really hasn't become more of a significant issue clinically until the past few years, so I thought that this was a very timely topic to tick off the list. Sorry. Anyway, all right, so Lyme disease. There's more than 30 to 35,000 cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. each year. 90% occur in the Northeast or North Central part of the country, but those zones are expanding. Therefore, more and more people are getting bit by ticks and contracting Lyme disease. The causative agent is everybody's favorite spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferi. There's other species in Europe and Asia, but Burgdorferi is what we see in the United States. The vector is the Ixode scapularis tick. And remember, not all ticks carry Lyme disease. Infections are transmitted more readily from nymphs, so the immature, younger, black-legged ticks, and they're really small. They're like two millimeters, which is the size of a pinhead. Adult ticks can transmit as well. And it generally takes three to four days after a bite from an infected tick to become infected. And you may not be surprised to hear that school-age children and teenagers are at the greatest risk because they play in the woods and brush more than us adults. So with that in mind, here's some of the advice that I give to families to help prevent Lyme disease. First of all, if you're going on a hike, stay on the trail. Stay out of the brush. Use an insect repellent with DEET. And even though it's hot out, long socks, long pants, or long sleeves... Don't give the tick a place to bite. If you're really finicky, you can wear lighter colored clothes so you can see the tick on them. And then after the kid's outside, do a skin check, encourage them to shower, check their hair, and ultimately make sure that if you see a tick, just remove it promptly. And how do you remove a tick? Well, don't burn it off or yell at it. Get very fine tip tweezers and gently remove the tick. Then take a nice picture of it and see if you can figure out what species it is. If you're concerned or can't make the match, it's appropriate to call their primary care doctor and they can help. And again, the tick needs to be attached for at least 36 to 48 hours, in most cases, before Borrelia can be transmitted. So if the kid gets bit by a tick, you discover it an hour later and you take it off, eh, you're not going to get Lyme disease. So how does it present here in the U.S.? So there's three distinct stages, early, early disseminated, and late. So let's start with early disease. And that is when you get erythema migrans. And yeah, this is an audio format, but go ahead and look it up. That is the annular ring-shaped rash that appears within one to two weeks after the tick bite. The halo or loop of redness continues to expand and it can have a slightly paler peripheral ring. You might even see vesicles or ulcers in the center. This rash can look like a number of different things, including urticaria, cellulitis, contact dermulitis, numular eczema, local insect bite reactions, or even erythema multiforme. And many patients don't actually know that they've been bitten by a tick. So learn how to recognize erythema migrans. What's important about early disease is that the majority of untreated patients will have later manifestations. So early disseminated disease, again, I'm going to drive this home. Most patients who get this actually don't know if they've had a tick exposure or not. 
The systemic manifestations include carditis. Atrioventricular block is the most common heart problem, but you can also see myocarditis and pericarditis. You can also see cranial nerve palsies or facial nerve palsies, aka Bell's palsy. This is the most common neuritis associated with Lyme. And because I know that this is kind of hard to remember on the fly, remember that Bell's palsy involves the upper and lower part of the face. But you can also see optic neuritis. So here's where it gets a little tricky, and I will come back to treatment in a bit. But if you're in an endemic Lyme area, you don't have risk factors for HSV, you've got a bit of a quandary in a patient with Bell's palsy. So you may end up treating with antivirals, antibiotics, and steroids. And then the worst complication of early disseminated disease are the neurologic problems like meningitis. This is a quote-unquote aseptic meningitis, so there's not bacteria sitting in there. And patients have headache, stiff neck, and, and generally feel relatively wretched. There's a rule of sevens that's helpful for predicting Lyme meningitis. So seven or more days of symptoms, 70% or greater CSF mononuclear cells on the tap, and seventh cranial nerve palsy. And then you can also get encephalitis, acute cerebellar ataxia, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, Guillain-Barre. All of these can be caused by Lyme, but fortunately they're much more rare. And then there's late disease. So three out of five patients who are not treated initially will develop late disease, which is arthritis. This can develop after days or months, and it's typically monoarticular, right? So one joint. It can be the knee, but it can also affect the hip in kids, and it can act like a septic arthritis, but obviously a septic arthritis needs ortho, operating room, and antibiotics, whereas Lyme just needs antibiotics. An isolated hip effusion in endemic areas is probably more likely to be Lyme disease if there's no history of fever and the white count is low. All right, so let's talk about how you actually make the diagnosis of Lyme disease. In somebody with a known tick bite in the recent past, where the tick has been feeding long enough, so day and a half, two days or more, and they develop erythema migraines, well, that's early disease. And concordantly, in an area of high prevalence, even if you don't see a tick bite, and the patients have some of the features of later disease, you should also suspect Lyme. Now, with regard to testing, well, it's not as easy as a rapid flu test. And unfortunately, that's where we get into a bit of trouble with patients and families. Because I think they're worried about Lyme and its potential implications, and they want testing. Couple that with the fact that clinician suspicion of Lyme disease, even in high prevalence areas, is not great. And you can read more about that in an excellent paper from Nigrovic et al. from Pediatrics in 2017. So in patients in whom you're suspicious, but there's other diagnoses on the table, CDC currently recommends a two-step testing process. Fortunately, both steps can be run off the same blood sample. Step is a sensitive immunoassay. This could be an ELISA or an immunofluorescence assay. And if that result is negative, then early disseminated disease or late Lyme disease is unlikely and you don't need step two. But if step one is positive 
or equivocal, then you go to step two, which is traditionally a Western blot for both IgM and IgG. Symptomatic patients with early disseminated disease, regardless of symptoms, should have positive IgM and IgG. It's possible to have an IgM positive and an IgG negative if the symptoms are less than six to eight weeks. On the other hand, if the patient's been symptomatic for greater than four weeks and only the IgM is positive, then you probably don't have Lyme, since that's more likely to be just past infection. Again, most IgGs are going to be positive past one month. Finally, in patients with multiple erythema migraines, who you should probably be empirically treating anyway, it is possible early on to see negative IgM and IgG. If you're still concerned, you could repeat serologic testing at three weeks, but then again, multiple erythema migraines, you should probably treat anyway. And what about this treatment? And first, not every tick bite requires antibiotics. However, if you know that the tick is ixode scapularis, the estimated time of attachment was greater than 36 hours, and you can start prophylaxis within 72 hours of tick removal, and you're in a high endemic area, then giving a single dose of 200 milligrams of doxy for adults or a single dose of 4.4 mg per keg of doxy for a kid any age under 45 kilos can reduce the risk of acquiring Lyme disease, but not other tick-borne illnesses like babesiosis or Rocky Mountain spotted fever. For early disease, just erythema migraines, the best medicine is doxycycline. It's 100 milligrams orally, twice daily for 10 days in grown-up sized patients, and then for kids, 4.4 mg per kg per day, orally divided twice daily with a max of 100 milligrams for 10 days. You can do this in patients younger than eight years, and you don't have to worry about turning their teeth a dark, nasty color. So the, even the AAP says it's okay to use doxy in under eight if you're using it for less than 21 days. Now, admittedly, the safety data on kids is limited, and you could use, especially if there's no evidence of neurologic disease, a beta-lactam. And that would be amoxicillin, giving 50 mg per kg per day, divided into three doses with a max of 500 milligrams for 14 days, so longer than the doxy course, or cefiroxime, which is 30 milligram per kilogram per day, divided twice daily, max of 500 milligrams for 14 days. If for whatever reason, patients can't tolerate doxy or those other two agents, you could do azithro or clarithromycin, but they're probably less effective. And remember, if you have early disease and you have single erythema migraines or multiple erythema migraines, you treat them the same way. For patients with a facial nerve palsy, the CDC currently recommends 14 to 21 days of doxycycline. For more significant disease, like meningitis or radiculoneuritis, there's currently equipoise between doxycycline or ceftriaxone, the latter of which is dosed at 50 to 75 milligram per kilogram once a day for 14 to 21 days, with a max dose of 2 grams for grown-ups. And then carditis, which fortunately is rare, and you guessed it, doxycycline, the most commonly recommended therapy. And again, you're going to use the same dosing as above for 21 days. If you have very serious heart disease, like second or third degree AV block, patient is in shock, then ceftriaxone, same dosing as before for 21 days, and you want to start that IV in the hospital, obviously. 
Some patients are so sick that they actually need a pacemaker. So this is a big deal. And then late stage Lyme, right? And so if you've got arthritis, doxycycline, same dosing, 28 days. You can use Amox as a backup also for 28 days. If patients are not getting better with oral therapy, then you could admit them for IV ceftriaxone or extend a longer course of doxycycline. And fortunately, it's not generally a consideration in the pediatric population, but if you have a pregnant patient, you're not going to use the tetracyclines or doxycycline, and you'll favor beta-lactams like cefiroxime or amoxicillin. If you've got severe neurologic disease and a pregnant patient, they probably shouldn't be at a children's hospital. You should talk to ID because that's a tough one. All right, so to wrap things up, Lyme disease incidence is spreading in the United States. If a patient is bitten by a tick and they have no symptoms whatsoever, you don't have to treat them with antibiotics despite how worried the family is. But you do have to have a really educated conversation. However, if they have erythema migrans, yeah, go ahead and treat them. Or if you're worried that you're in an endemic area and they have Bell's palsy or carditis or a monoarticular arthritis and you think that there may have been a tick in their past, well, that's a case when you do want to treat. And doxycycline for the majority of patients, aside from very severe neurologic manifestations, is your go-to therapy at varying lengths of times. In terms of testing, well, you shouldn't wait on the results of the tests if your pretest probability for the diagnosis is really high. But for patients with other diagnoses in the consideration, certainly the immunoassays can be helpful, and I'd urge you to be familiar with what your laboratory capabilities are in your local facility. I hope you enjoyed this episode of PEM Currents, the pediatric emergency medicine podcast focused on Lyme disease. If you have any other ideas for topics, send them my way. In fact, this episode topic was recommended by a colleague of mine, Gwen Feldhaus. Thanks, Gwen. If you have any feedback, reviews, or recommendations, you know where to find me. Twitter direct messages, email, Facebook comments, review on your favorite podcast site. All feedback is welcome. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski. Take care.